Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Luke Sheehan. He is assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Duquesne University. He's also a non-resident scholar at the Program for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania. His book just came out entitled Why Associations Matter, The Case for First Amendment Pluralism. That's our topic for today. Welcome, Luke. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. Well, first, Luke, let me ask you a contextual question. Why is it that one has to make any argument at all in favor of freedom association today? Well, uh, the first one is that the Supreme Court in its case law treating this First Amendment right has not actually done a particularly good job of it. In fact, I would argue it's done a particularly bad job of it. Um, it's The arguments that it's made um, in its case law for freedom of association have basically subsumed that right, which should be grounded in an independent clause, the, the assembly clause, into the speech clause, uh, ignoring all aspects, uh, many aspects of association. So in Supreme Court case law, um, as a matter of constitutional rights, as, as they are enforced by the federal courts, freedom of association is not particularly well protected. What, what is the difference between freedom of association and freedom of assembly? Uh, that's a good question, and it's one that uh, that's uh, fairly hotly debated in in First Amendment literature. Um, I don't see them as as different. Um, the difference between freedom of assembly and, and freedom of association we might see as the same difference between freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Um, so that is, they're largely synonyms. And one one difficulty with discussing freedom of association versus freedom of assembly today is that we don't have uh, a proper understanding of freedom of assembly. So when we hear freedom of assembly, we don't hear the same term that the authors, the drafters of the First Amendment heard. When they heard freedom of assembly, they heard a very robust uh, term that protected all sorts of freedom uh, of assembling, peaceable assembling. Uh, when we hear assembly, we think of uh, some people getting together at, uh, at that weekly meeting in high school, we don't think of assemblies uh, or associations. That is, we don't think of them institutionally. Uh, and the drafters of the First Amendment would have heard the right of assembly in a more institutional sense. Um, so what they had in mind, and in fact, this is referenced in the debates over the wording of the First Amendment, is William Penn and the incident in 1670 when he attempted to assemble peaceably with his other Quakers and he was arrested um, for, for violating uh, prohibitions on religious assembly. That's what they had in mind. They had the ability of people to come together 
um, in an association and to meet and convene over time uh, um, to associate effectively. That's what they had in mind when they drafted the assembly clause. And it's just not the same term we hear today. You refer to a, quote, vanishing freedom of association. What would you find is the most egregious example in recent times, or maybe not so recent times, I mean in the 20th century, of, of this vanishing freedom? Is there one incident that, that really stands out, maybe not even necessarily a court case, but something outside the course, because you spend, we're going to, we're, we'll get into a lot of the legal legalities here, but is, is there an episode that you would point to that really crystallizes this vanishing freedom? Yeah, well, you can go back, uh, really, I don't get into this into the book. Um, mostly what I treat is the, 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 uh, um, the case law and that sort of thing. Uh, but you can go back to World War One um, and, and Wilson's war state. And Robert Nisbet discusses this um, at some length in, in a couple of his books. Uh, but the, the authorization that President Wilson gave to the four, the four minute men, uh, these were people who could go into any meeting. So that is any associational meeting. And they had four minutes to make the case for the war. Um, an egregious violation of freedom of association. Uh, one of the, the paramount aspects of freedom of association is the ability to be able to exclude people who are not uh, part of the association, who are not wanted there. Um, if you're having a pacifist society meeting, uh, you should be able to tell the pro-war speaker that they can't speak at your meeting. Um, that's fairly fundamental. If you are the NAACP, you should be able to exclude uh, Klansmen and so on. Um, that's paramount, the paradigmatic essential part of freedom of association. And that was violated all the way back during World War One, along with uh, plenty of other rights. So, so Wilson, Wilson actually made it a regulation that every meeting had to allow four minutes for a pro-war speaker? That's right. Uh, the four minute men. Uh, I'm not sure which which law it was attached to, but that was a, this this thing he could that he authorized. Um, I probably should devote a, one of my next books to uh, to that uh, to that topic. Yeah, yeah. But what what you what you pointed out a minute ago really gets to the the, the problem, and that is the the fact that associations can't exist without some rules of exclusion. And this gets to probably the most important case, one of the most important cases in your book, and that is the Christian Legal Society versus Martinez. Can you, as from 2010 when it hit the Supreme Court, can you recount for our listeners the, the whole situation and the outcome of that case? Yeah, sure. So Christian Legal Society versus Martinez. This was a case at Hastings Law School in California, a public law school. Uh, there was a student group there, Christian Legal Society. It was a group for Christian law students at Hastings Law School. And there's a number of these chapters at law schools across the country. They had a constitution that required their members to adhere to a statement of faith. Uh, you would recognize it as uh, an evangelical Christian uh, statement, um, you know, very ecumenical, uh, something probably um, many other Christians could sign on to, but distinctly Christian. 
Uh, so, it, you know, faith in Christ uh, for the redemption of sins, these sorts of language. It also had a behavioral requirements, um, a, a number of things, one of which was uh, abstaining from sexual intercourse or sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, uh, which is uh, a fairly routine Christian understanding of, uh, of sexual morality. Uh, the university, a public university, uh, turned down the group's memberships that you cannot have, or the group's uh, association status as a student organization, and said you cannot have these requirements uh, as as part of uh, and be a student organization. Uh, now they went further, and the school said you they they implemented uh, what's called an all commerce policy, and they said actually every student group cannot exclude any other student from student organization from, from being a part of their organization. So this means you could run for uh, office in the College Democrats if you're a Republican, and they couldn't stop you from doing that. They couldn't have any requirements like that. Now, for a Christian legal society, you could join the group if you wanted. That is, you could come to the meetings, but you just couldn't vote or hold office if you disagreed with the statement of faith or if you refused to abide by the behavioral requirements. Uh, now, every group, every association in existence has some sort of belief system at its core, uh, some dogma, is what Robert Nismet calls it. Uh, we recognize dogma, or dogma gets a, a bad term, but it just means doctrine, some beliefs at the beginning. And, and it's, it, it's, it just means something is good. You know, for Christianity, it's, it's uh, you know, the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed. Um, but even a, a chess club has a dogma, and it's that chess playing is good and worthwhile to do. Uh, then you have behavioral requirements. You know, you've got to attend the meetings and uh, play chess and probably read some books on chess or something like that, discuss chess. You can't show up to the chess meeting, play checkers. Um, so there's a, a belief system at the core of every association. And every association, to be itself, has to exclude people who don't believe with it, believe in that, uh, and don't abide by the behavioral norms. And it could be as, as banal as is playing chess uh, at the, the chess meetings um, or, or high and lofty of, uh, of fasting during Ramadan for the Muslim Students Association or something like that. Uh, but every group has a core belief system and has behavioral requirements that attach to that core belief system. Um, no matter how high and lofty or how seemingly banal, that's necessary for every association to be an association. So going back to Christian Legal Society versus Martinez, the public university says, no, the student organizations in our student organization forum, which the Supreme Court has explicitly said is a First Amendment forum. It's a public forum, meaning First Amendment rights apply there. And the court has refused to allow public universities to deny funding to religious groups in that forum on the basis that that would be a violation of, of, of religious liberty. It would be treating religious groups different from uh, from non-religious groups uh, and so on. So it's said this student organization forum at a public university is uh, a, a forum where First Amendment rights apply. So this case, uh, the Christian Legal Society sued and went to up all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court said, uh, actually, the public university can impose requirements on student organizations operating within student organization forum at a public university, the public university, 
which is still bound by the First Amendment. The court acknowledged that the First Amendment is still applies in the student organization forum. They can actually tell groups what their membership requirements are to be, or they can, it can refuse to allow them to have membership requirements. And the reasoning the court, the court said is that the speech rights of the students were not infringed. So that is, students could still express whatever views they had um, regarding Christianity, regarding uh, Christian moral values. Um, none of those, the speech rights were not violated, despite the fact that the organization could not exclude people who disagreed with that. So the Christian Legal Society, which only had something like nine members, um, could not tell other people not to join the group. Now, um, there have been incidents where a an unpopular group on campus um, was nearly thrown off campus because hostile students showed up, tried to vote themselves onto the board, um, and and get the and then disband the group. Um, so that these plans have been concocted uh, against some student groups. Uh, and it, when you only have nine members, it's it's all the more important <laughs> that you, you know, all it takes is is me and nine of my friends to show up to your group and vote ourselves into the uh, into office and and we can disband your group. Um, and the Supreme Court said, well, that's, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, despite the fact that there had been cases of this and, and, and amicus briefs outlined those cases. So the Supreme Court or their clerks should, should have known about that. And the dissent did know about it. Uh, Justice Alito did bring up those incidents in his dissent. Um, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, you know, as long as the individual can express their views, it doesn't matter that the org that the university, the public university, is is dictating membership requirements to these groups. Now, again, the danger, the real danger I see here, and, and sometimes this case is misunderstood. So some people say, well, no, no, no. If anything, this is kind of a conservative case. It's saying that the court is acknowledging the authority of the university in its proper sphere. And I think that that's misunderstanding uh, what's going on because the it's a public university, uh, first of all. Private universities, of course, this case would not apply to. Um, so my own institution, Duquesne University, of course, has the authority uh, to, uh, as a private religious institution, to decide its own internal policies regarding such things. Uh, public universities, though, I think, ought to be held to um, some different standards. Uh, furthermore, what the court did not say is all of our previous case law regarding the first amendment, the application of the First Amendment to um, public universities, well, we're, we're wrong on that. Um, and, and we're overturning that precedent. That's not what it said. It said, no, the First Amendment still applies here, but freedom of association, what freedom of association? And that, I think, is what makes that case so so dangerous. If they had said, look, we were wrong previously, the First Amendment doesn't apply in this context, I think that would have been unwise. I think that uh, the First Amendment or the Student Organization Forum looks a lot like a public forum. Um, that is, students voluntarily are forming their own groups and then expressing their views and that sort of thing, um, including forming religious groups. That looks a lot to me uh, like a First Amendment forum, like a public forum. Um, and all the university is doing is facilitating it. It's not determining, it's not forming any of the groups on its own. Um, so that looks to me a lot like First Amendment rights being practiced. Um, so I think the court would have been very unwise to categorize student organizations forums that way. But that's not what it did. What it did is said, yes, this is a place where First Amendment rights apply, but not freedom of association only freedom of speech. And I think that's the really dangerous move the court makes. When that course hit hit the court and the court issued its judgments, I was at the Madison program at, at Princeton that year. And I said to one of the fellows at the program, who was actually a political theorist and a, and a strong, devout Christian, I said, well, what's going to happen in that Christian legal studies case and oh it'll be felt oh 
of course that Berkeley will lose that one. The law school will never prevail in that. And of course, you know, that the law school did was was the incredulity widespread when that decision came out? Was it a big surprise? It's uh, it it was a fairly big surprise, I think, for uh, civil libertarians um, who are paying attention to um, to higher educate to the cases on higher education. So, uh, for example, uh, and and Rosenberger versus uh, University of Virginia in 1995, uh, the court had come down solidly on behalf of the religious group and the and telling a university it had to fund religious groups um, on the same basis as secular groups. And so the court had kind of ruled again and again on behalf of the student organization or the students against the university. Um, there was also the, the freedom of association cases uh, that were not at the university where the court had come down on, on behalf of the organization. So the Boy Scouts case in 2000. Um, and so I think when that case came up, everyone thought that, that the court was just going to continue uh, to recognize in that way, uh, what they kind of forget is that the you know Dale, the Dale case, the Boy Scouts case was five four. So it, these were fairly closely decided cases, and the argument I make in the book is that this had been lurking. The Supreme Court's direction, trajectory in its case law had been lurking um, really since the since the late 1950s when it first names freedom of association. So it doesn't reference freedom of doesn't call this right freedom of assembly. It calls it freedom of association. In the late 1950s, it had been lurking underneath that case law. Uh, so what happened here is in 1958, uh, the Supreme Court heard NAACP versus Alabama, um, and it ruled uh, for the NAACP, uh, 9-0, and rightly. Uh, Luke, I was, I was going to ask about that case. What, what, go, go ahead and give our listeners uh, the, the background for the NAACP Alabama case. Sure. So there's a, a number of cases in the late 50s and early 60s dealing with the NAACP and their right to associate uh, in southern states effectively. So NAACP versus Alabama in 1958. Uh, the NAACP was incorporated in New York, but it was operating in Alabama. This is late 50s Alabama. Uh, and the state of Alabama asked the NAACP to turn over its membership list. So if you want to operate here, we need to see your membership list. Uh, for fairly obvious reasons, the NAACP did not want to turn over its membership list. Um, and it, it filed suit against Alabama uh, to uh, retain its membership. And this goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, yes, as an aspect of the right of association, the NAACP does not have to turn over its membership list. Um, if it wants to keep its membership list private, that's part of its right of association, that sort of autonomy. Uh, that's That's all well and good, I think, Court was right on that. The, the kind of the problematic is lurking within the reasoning of that opinion, as the court keeps tying the right of the NAACP to operate its right of association as an important aspect of freedom of speech, because freedom of speech is important to democratic governance. So NAACP here was advocating uh, for peaceful uh, change, political change, and the court said, well, since they're participating in our democracy. That means they're uh, exercising freedom of speech. That means they have freedom of association. Luke, why not connect it to freedom of assembly? Well, that's uh, that's a good question. Uh, and uh, John Anazu, uh, a great First Amendment scholar at, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, he says that that's what the court, basically his argument is that's what the court should have done. And freedom of assembly, of course, is a separate clause from freedom of speech. 
Um, and the implications there is it's protecting a right of of you know right of association, a right of assembly that's that's not necessarily expressive. It can be expressive, of course, or it can be implicitly expressive. Um, but you will, could assemble for all sorts of reasons, uh, not connected directly to democratic governance. So I make the argument that the problem is, is the court has this framework. I call it the First Amendment dichotomy, where it sees First Amendment rights as only playing out through the interactions, is mediating the interaction between the individual and the state. So the right of association, it'll protect it when it sees that association is somehow facilitating democratic governance. So in the NAACP case, it says, well, the NAACP is, is advocating for this political change. Therefore, they have First Amendment rights. Now, I would say they had First Amendment rights even before they advocated uh, for democratic change. Uh, they had a right of assemb peaceable assembly, and they should have won on those grounds. Um, even though the court didn't even have to reach the speech question, basically. Um, it could have decided it and should have decided on, on assembly grounds. Um, now, the court continues, um, and, and in that case, the, the, the reasoning in NAACP is fairly nuanced. But when you get into uh, later cases, the court's much more explicit that the speech clause is what's at issue and not the assembly clause. Is this because what, what you mentioned earlier, freedom of assembly entails some forms of exclusion, free speech does not. And exclusion is, exclusion is just a bad word in the last 50 years. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, the right of association is necessarily exclusive. Now, I make the, we don't like that term. Uh, and, I, and I'll admit, like temperamentally, I'm fairly inclusive. I uh, kind of look for common ground. It's just as a, as a it's my personal temperament. Um, but every group, uh, the argument I make in my book is every group, the chess club is exclusive. It excludes people. Now, you know, most of these exclusions are, are fairly banal. Uh, I don't think the chess club really has to, you know, be hard on those checkers players to keep showing up um, by and large. But it do, does necessarily exclude people who uh, either refuse to, I mean, think about, uh, you know, some chess clubs could be very stringent and we expect you to show up every meeting. We expect you to practice. We expect you to, you know, read uh, the search for Bobby Fischer. Um, and really participate in 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 the life of the group. And if you're kind of just going to show up sometimes and play chess a little bit, we, do, we don't want you in our group. Uh, we want somebody who's really dedicated to this. Um, and the I would argue that the right of freedom of assembly is a peaceable assembly to get together with your chess club friends. And um, they have a right to do that, be as stringent or as lax as they want to be. The same applies um, to all other groups. Um, so religious groups, of course, should be able to say, uh, we're the Muslim Student Association. You need to believe uh, in Muslim beliefs regarding uh, Muhammad and Allah, and uh, you need to fast during Ramadan, and you need to pray five times a day, and we want people in our group who are going to abide by those rules. Um, and uh, for some reason, we, we get really uh, tense about the word of exclusion, and, and, and for some good historical reasons, we're uncomfortable with uh, the way African Americans were treated, of course, um, but that's a separate issue. And in fact, uh, you know, the argument I make is why why are African-Americans so successful? That is, why does the NAACP prevail? Because it had the right of association, because it didn't have to turn over its membership list. If the court had said, well, you know, let's go ahead and, uh, you know, they have the individual right of expression, you know, what's wrong with, why do they really need this right of association? Uh, the NAACP, I think, would never have prevailed. Um, they prevailed because they could have this right of, of autonomy for the group, its internal governance. They could exclude 
racist from the group, it excluded people who weren't devoted to it, and it could protect those on the inside, protect their privacy if need be, and not turn over its membership list. My, my take on, on things as it stands today is that uh, so many institutions that proclaim their inclusivity the loudest uh, demand the greatest uniformity of opinion on so many issues. And, and so uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that plays out. You mentioned a moment ago the dichotomy that we've got individual and state. And, and you say in the book that we seem to have lost this, this third component, and that is the, quote, social group. What is the social group and how did we lose it? Yeah, so the, uh, the social group is the, not all of the, the plethora of non-political association. So I mean non-state uh, association. So not the federal government, not the state government, not the county government uh, per se, although that gets a little, the closer you get to home, the local, the kind of more ambiguous it gets in terms of the distinction between political and social. But I mean by social groups is I mean the churches, the synagogues, the chess clubs, uh, the reading groups, uh, even the family. So the family is even more fundamental than I think um, uh, the associations I'm talking about, but all of those other groups that we're a part of um, that are not, don't implicate our citizenship in the state, our, you know, our voting rights, um, these, all of the other things that we're involved in that really structure the vast majority of all of our lives. Um, they're structured by these other groups that we're a part of. Um, these are the very structure of our lives, and they're essential, I think, to a humane human existence. I think that's uh, very clear in the uh, you know, psychological and sociological literature. Um, and the, the thinker I use the most in all these issues is Robert Nisbet, uh, the great American sociologist. Uh, when, when I'm in, in my view, uh, there's a great line uh, in, uh, in Tom Wolfe's novel, I'm Charlotte Simmons, uh, where Charlotte goes in and meets with one of her, her professors, and uh, it, she cites to Nisbet in one of her papers. And her professor says, well, I think he was not only the, uh, the greatest sociologist of the 20th century, but the greatest philosopher as well. Uh, and I'd, I'd agree with that statement. I think Nisbet was really one of the premier 20th century thinkers. And uh, he gets uh, a great deal of credit, but in my view, not even enough credit, really, for how insightful he was, how prescient he was. Uh, he wrote, published his, uh, for the listeners who don't know, he published his most famous book, which was also his first book, The Quest for Community in 1953. And he makes the argument there that in the Western world, has, it, we've become increasingly uh, driven by uh, a dichotomy. He doesn't call it this. This is my term for it. I call it a, a dichotomy of state and individual. Um, so we see the um, the political powers is and the individual as the kind of the two the primary players in social and political thought. And in fact, we've lost sight of the real substance of of um, life, which is associational. Um, the individuals and the state are actually fairly ephemeral. Um, we can't really talk about individuals without abstracting because no individual exists in this kind of abstract state as an individual. Um, and I think much of, of the work that's been done on individualism has, has uh, you know, increased our understanding of a humane life. I mean, that, that, that's true, and Nisbet acknowledges that. But there's this kind of dark side to it, a dark side to individualism, where we've treated individuals as if they can be bereft of their associations, and they can't be. We never see individuals, he writes in another one of his books, we never find an individual outside of their associations. We don't just meet these abstract individuals anywhere. We meet instead uh, members of families, members of local communities, members of churches and synagogues and mosques, people who have occupations, all these sorts of things. Um, that's what they are. And so 
this third component, uh, the social component, is one that we've completely lost sight of in our uh, understanding of, of how law should operate. And, and the argument I make is how the First Amendment should operate. Uh, so why is it the freedom of assembly? Why does that clause just disappear? Well, it's because we've, for reasons Nisbet said, uh, that we've lost sight of this third component, this associational component. So we, instead of thinking only in terms of, well, here's the state and here's the individual citizens and how do they interact with each other? And, and, and to the extent we talk about associations, we talk about in this as this kind of intermediary. And associations do do that. They do intermediate between the individual and the state, but they do all sorts of other things as well. Um, they, for example, um, help us to uh, uh, organize around activities we enjoy, like maybe chess playing or playing basketball. Um, they help us uh, associate around um, ultimate issues, uh, like reconciling ourselves to God. Uh, all of the religious associations, um, what are they doing? Well, not, they have nothing to do with intermediating between us and the state, very little to do with that. Uh, if, they, if they intermediate between us and the state, it's almost accidental. What they really do is intermediate between us and God. Um, and that's even true of Protestants who like to say that, but that, that's true there too. Um, you gather with your fellow believers um, and you worship God properly. You take your sacraments and so on. Uh, however, you do, however the religious organization defines that, that's what they do. Um, that's the good they're seeking. Um, to the extent the First Amendment protects them, I, I think the First Amendment is not, as many scholars say, it's, it's not facilitating democratic government. Uh, it's not saying, oh, well, we have these rights so that that helps cultivate citizens um, and it helps with speech, which, of course, is essential to democratic government. Um, I think that's actually very little of what the First Amendment does. It does do those things. Uh, but what it really does is it protects these social groups. Um, it shields, um, it, 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 it limits the jurisdiction of the state. Um, says the state doesn't have jurisdiction. Uh, Stephen D. Smith and uh, Richard Garnett are great on this point. Um, the state does not have jurisdiction over certain matters regarding religion. That's what the religion clauses are saying. The state does not have jurisdiction in these areas. These other institutions do. Uh, and for freedom of assembly, which was completely fallen off, uh, fallen off the wagon, the argument I make in the book is, well, what it's also saying, the First Amendment is also saying is, the state doesn't have jurisdiction over social matters, not just religious matters, but some social matters as well. Uh, the state doesn't have jurisdiction. Uh, I use the banal example of a chess club, but the state doesn't have jurisdiction over chess playing. Who does? Well, chess clubs do. Um, and if you want to play chess, uh, you're going to have to either join one of those clubs or, uh, or start your own. And so this third component is what I think is so essential. One, one last thing. Give us a one-minute outline of this proposal you make at the end of the book called the Freedom of Association Preservation Act. Sure. So I, uh, I my my solution to this problem in the jur in, in jurisprudence is uh, is I come up with what I call the functional autonomy test. So it's a test the Supreme Court can um, can implement. Um, the Supreme Court, when it deals with uh, cases, it usually comes up with a, with some sort of test, a three prong or a four prong test. I give it a four prong test. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, I take these, uh, this test, so that I'll, I'll explain the test and then I'll explain how the, uh, how the sample legislation I draw up, uh, applies it. So the test I have, uh, is, uh, based upon Nisbet's four principles of pluralism. So functional autonomy, decentralization, authority, and, uh, tradition. And uh, so that the kind of, the question the courts, the federal courts would ask is, uh, does this uh, does this policy or this law or this, uh, you know, uh, uh, public university policy, does it infringe on the, on the functional autonomy of a group? And does it infringe on, uh, on the authority of the group? And does it 
and appropriately centralized power. So that is, is it appropriating authority that should reside in some some social organization to the state itself when it really should reside in that association? So that is, it really should be something governed under the assembly clause or the religion clauses. And then does it interfere with the tradition of the group? And what I mean by that is small t tradition. So that is, every group comes up with its own practices, its own internal um, internal ways of being. And is that that from the outside don't look very important, but from the inside could be essential to the life of the group. So the question is, uh, is is the policy inappropriately interfering with that? Now, I also drop a piece of sample legislation, the Freedom of Association Protection Act. Um, It's based largely on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So a lot of the language is drawn from that act uh, from the 1990s, but it's adapted to freedom of association. And the idea here is that legislatures, state and federal, can pass legislation that will protect associations within its jurisdiction. Um, So they can say, basically require uh, that courts treat, treat freedom of association not as freedom of speech, but treat it as a separate right and uh, uh, treat it with strict scrutiny. So that is the court has to apply the highest level of scrutiny to any infringements upon associational rights. Do you think that this, uh, you, you can get some legislators interested in this? Especially if you, if you say this is, a, this is a freedom of association version of of the of the rifra oh uh, yeah that's a good question i think uh i think that it could um so i'm, I'm thinking here of uh there's been increased attention uh to social alienation um and to people being disconnected from social groups um so kind of there's a lot of pieces to to that puzzle and to, to solving that uh, that puzzle but one of them is making sure that, that these groups that would uh, correctly and health in a healthy way integrate individuals have the autonomy to do so. It's not clear they do it in 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 the current state of the law right now. Um, so one thing that uh, a number I think of legislators should be interested in is protecting this prong. Um, uh, so that is, what can the state do to encourage these social groups? Well, it, kind of the the point is these groups have to form on their own. Here's one thing the state can do: let's make sure they can form. Uh, let's get this legislation through to make sure that public universities cannot suppress student organizations, which would have a, do a great job of integrating students, the students uh, that they treat, into these social groups on campus. Let's, let's start there. Um, that's something that uh, every state legislature could do, and it would be, uh, it would be a big part of the puzzle. Um, is ensuring the right of association. And that's something that could be, uh, I give have the sample legislation, um, is something that could be um, drawn up fairly easily. And it's a big part of the puzzle. And it's one that that politicians can actually do. Um, like I said, um, a big part of these uh, social groups and the problem of social, social alienation is there isn't a political solution to it other than making sure that the state ena- enables that freedom to be able to form those associations. And then, and then of course, the burden, of, uh, the burden shifts to social entrepreneurs to form those groups and to promote them. The book is Why Associations Matter, The Case for First Amendment Pluralism. Thank you, Luke Sheehan. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.